This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. one 800 913 Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back this week to another episode of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's always great to be with you and for those of you that uh, this is your first time, hope you find a voice here of an American Muslim who's contrite, who's honest, who's a patriot, who loves not only my country, but freedom and liberty, and realizes that the threat against us is a Muslim threat, is an Islamist threat. Not all Muslims, but the ideology of Islamism, and I am here to take that on to hold Muslims accountable, and to leave a legacy of reform, a legacy that, in the name of American freedom, liberty, and security, takes the battle to the jihadists. Week to week, you and I breached those uh, chasms of division between the world that's still in theocracy under the Sharia state and the world of freedom, the world of the West and democracy that... I was blessed to have parents that decided to come here before I was born and allow me to grow up in a land that was free and not, as we see in Syria today, where my parents fled in the late 60s, is a land fighting for freedom, but roiling in genocide, roiling in civil war, that had we still been there, we may not have survived. But they're alive. They're fighting for freedom. And there's a lot of changes happening in the Middle East. There's a lot to talk about this week, but we must start with Manchester. I'll get to the president's address in Saudi Arabia. I know we talked about it, prepped all of you for what our expectations were, what my expectations were for that. But now that it's done, I think it's important to review it, give it a grade, talk about what exactly the president left us with in Riyadh, left the Arab world with. But first... You can now add Manchester, Manchester, UK, to the list of cities beset with the horror, the horror, the barbarism of radical Islamism. A the son of Libyan immigrants, an individual born in the UK, decided 
to do not only the most heinous of acts of barbarism, which is any act of terrorism, but to do it in the egress point of an Ariana Grande concert as young girls, women, exited to go to their parents and their vehicles out of the stadium, 21,000 there. The suicide bomber, 22 years old, Abadi, decided to detonate a vest, a suicide bomb, and killed 22 and injured over 50. Some kids still haven't found it back to their families, lost in the mess and the chaos of the disorder of a concert that teenagers and kids went to watch, only to now be etched forever in their memory as part of a list of cities that have been beset with acts of terrorism. We've always known that the perimeter of various hard and soft targets has been increasing, that you can set a perimeter to so much and make sure that inside they're safe. But as they get there, whether it's the perimeter of the airport that we saw in the ISIS attack in Istanbul, or perimeters that are changed by the type of device that's used to kill innocents that walk on the streets as vehicular jihad mows them over in a way that's almost unpreventable. And now we saw on Monday night, late Monday night in Manchester, Britain had not been attacked to this level since July 2005 on 7-7 when tens and tens were killed in the bombing at that point was Al-Qaeda. There was no ISIS back then. This is the first major ISIS attack, not the first attack. It happened to be four years to the day that Lee Rigby was assassinated, killed in an act of terroristic cold blood in the streets as he was attacked. The British people were threatened over the past few weeks through chat rooms and forums of ISIS that said called upon radical Islamists to attack to bring the fury the fury of a successful and surprising blow to the Brits in retaliation for the UK airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. So they were on notice but this has been sort of the new normal for many, many months. We saw these similar attacks in Paris. And then the same cell in Paris committed an act in Brussels in March 2016. Did the Brits let their guard down? You know, from a security perspective, I don't think so. Every time these militants, these animals bring us a new level of depravity that their elevator doesn't go low has no has no bottom floor as sheriff clark said on fox news this week but as president trump called them these are evil losers he didn't want to even recognize them as monsters because monsters are feared monsters can win 
They want to win on the field of jihad. To them, any country that's not Muslim is a land of war. We are in war, and we're reminded. And now add to the list, sadly, add to the list of cities that will be remembered when they're mentioned now for the acts of terror. As we know now, when we mention Nice, we think of the act of terror. When we think of Paris, we think of Charlie Hebdo and then the other attack. When I think of San Bernardino, I think of Afshin Malik and her husband. When I think of Chattanooga, when I think of Boston Strong, yes, these hashtags, these remembrances are important to keep us strong. But the list, the rituality of creating a list almost as if it's just a simple whack-a-mole program diverts us from the fact that every city is already on that list. The militants want to change our way of life. They want to unravel what it means to be free. And they want to destroy the openness of our society, the liberalism, the individuality, and divert us into a change system that isn't a threat existentially to the Muslim community so that they have the only thing to give them, which is a caliphate and an Islamic state based in their draconian interpretations of Sharia. It is evil to its lowest level. They attack women and children because they're vulnerable, because of the symbolism of pain that that will invoke in a society. And ultimately, those who see the easier route as withdrawing from foreign conflicts will do that because that's ultimately their goal, is to weaken our resolve. And Muslims here, because of the depravity, We'll see it as completely detached from them, even though we need to link nonviolent Islamism to violent Islamism. We need to get past the denial that, yes, the depravity might be so far down the road of anything that any human being would ever think of, that it's easy to detach yourself from it. But the more you detach it, the less you're going to get the solutions. The drunk that has an alcohol level of 0.4 drives the wrong way down the streets and kills two families. Is it any different than the drunk that runs into a tree and has no one else that's dead? And has sustained a few minor injuries himself. The disease of alcoholism is the same. The substance in our case as Muslims, as political Islam, as the dominance, the supremacism of Islamic theocracy and the Sharia state. It's the hate for America. In the next segment, when we come back, I want to talk to you about the real steps of radicalization. What are the processes by which Muslims get radicalized? How do we miss that? Is it just that last step? I want to end this segment with a moment of silence. We've had many this week. I have three kids that are 15, 12, and 8. And could have been at that concert. I don't live in London. I don't live in Manchester. But a concert on the West that these militants attack because it has symbolism of freedom, of liberalism, of women's rights, 
young girls. God, keep us safe. One moment of silence. God bless you all. God bless the United States of America. We'll be right back on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. Thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for being part of my team, part of the reformers, and uh, those that believe that Muslims need to reform our faith and at least begin to own up to be contrite, humble, and own the problem. And this is a place I hope that uh, if you've been listening week to week, you get that in-depth conversation about issues that everybody else touches on just a superficial level. And slowly together we'll build an army of freedom advocates, liberty advocates, and anti-Islamists that get it. Whether Muslim or non-Muslim, this is our global problem and we can solve it. We've been talking about Manchester, the Ariana Grande concert that ended in horror, that ended with 22 families, if not more, not being able to ever see their child, their loved one again because they were attacked for being free. They were blown to smithereens with nails because they wanted to sing and dance and publicly be together. It was a symbolism of freedom, a symbolism of what it is to assemble together as free peoples. They've attacked soccer games and Paris, they've attacked the parliament uh, four years to the day they had attacked Lee Rigby for being part of the protection force of Britain. Why is it that there are more British Muslims serving in the jihad for ISIS in Syria over the past few years than most studies have shown are serving currently? In the British military. Now, maybe the numbers are off by a bit, but even the fact that they're close should tell every Muslim that you ha- we have a major problem. I was raised, if I, as, I, as I told you in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, what made me not able to be radicalized, because my, my bio is not much different than, uh, than uh, um, um, Nidal Hassan. He's an army doctor. I'm a military doctor. He served on a military scholarship, and I did. He's a physician. I am. Son of immigrants, I am. But he turned out to be one of America's greatest enemies who should be killed in the electric chair 
God willing, once his appeals die off. It's because his brain, his ideology, his identity was never American. His identity was foreign. His loyalty was to the jihad. He was a treasonous enemy of this country. And what divides Muslims in this war globally is either you are a national patriot for secular lands based on the defense of every human being equally under God, or you're a patriot for the Islamic State, for the jihad, the global caliphate. There is no in-between. Well, I'm critical of America, but oh, there's a utopian Islamic State. No, you're either with the West, and it doesn't have to just be the West. Any country, Tunisia, that wants to be free and treat every individual as the universal human rights, universal declaration of human rights, then you're modern. Or you're medieval and part of an Islamic Sharia state. And I don't care, Shadi Hamid, how modern and how, oh, as he says in his perch from Brookings that there's Islamic exceptionalism. Shadi tweeted this week, he said, by the way, I've asked him a few times to debate me publicly about the threat of political Islam, and he will not even honor that with a response. But he tweets this week that he says that if there's anyone who still says, why aren't more Muslims condemning terror, then there's probably nothing you can say to them at this point, quote, unquote. Every time we hear these Islamists bellyache about being told to condemn terrorism. Well, the interesting thing is I, in all of this work, have yet to put out a press release condemning terrorism. But the reason these Islamists have to is because they're never talking about solutions. They're never targeting the ideas to make it clear that there's no way anyone could interpret that they're sympathizers for acts of terror. So if you're silent, you have to put out... If you're silent in this work, you basically do have to put out releases to show that you condemn this act, this act of war against our citizenry. And yet my response to that was, well, when the U.S. Muslims actually spend money on counter-terror and counter-Islamism centers, then maybe we can whine about why we're not being paid attention to. But meanwhile, until that happens... Shadi Hamid and CARE and MPAC and the Islamic side of North America, you can just keep your press releases. Those condemnations don't mean anything. It's just paper condemnations, fax condemnations, email condemnations, speech condemnations. These are not reforms that treat the cause. They're not contrite. They're not showing contrition for a community that realizes that we have books, we have sermons, we have imams that are protected in the mosques of our community, that are given microphones, that speak ill of this society, that radicalize our Muslims. What are the stages of radicalization? So what do we need to own up to? We need to own up to the fact that these radicals as as has been said before, Elliot Abrams said this week in Foreign Policy, these militants don't just drop out of thin air, out of the sky, out of outer space. That's sort of what seemed that President Trump and Elliot said in the context of talking to the Saudis, as if they could set up a counterterrorism center that somehow these guys are coming out of nowhere. 
and the governments that President Trump was speaking to have nothing to do with the radicalization. And they could somehow set up this Orwellian counterterrorism center and somehow that would fix the problem because they're countering terror, which is a tactic, while the government feeds the ideology that everybody ignored. So the shadis and Islamists of this world can lecture us about demanding that they condemn terror when they actually start seeing in every city across the country, instead of list of cities, every city that is listed from Boston to San Bernardino should then start to have their Muslim community build, not mosques, but counter-Islamism centers that root out and demand Islamic reform against blasphemy and apostasy laws that teach our youth to be pro-American and patriotic. What are the stages of radicalization? The last step is the one where all of your billions of dollars are being spent on, which is the last step. Let me jump to the last one. That's when they're operationalized, when they become militant and think that, well, suicide's okay. I am going to get a vest. I'm going to get a bomb and kill these non-combatants. And they get that from engaging with a spiritual sanction or an imam or somebody online that tells them to be a soldier, to be a militant jihadi, not just a civilizational jihadi, a militant jihadi. That's where our homeland security is working, spending billions of dollars, is find, trying to find clues. And in Britain, we knew there were 3,500 being watched on that list. 3,500. And this guy was one of them. He was a known wolf, not a lone wolf. Again, if you've listened to my podcast before, you know I can't stand the term lone wolf. None of these guys are lone anything. It's like saying each individual flu virus in a flu pandemic are lone viruses. It's a pandemic. They're individual patients, but they're not lone. So ultimately, we need to address the problem. The stages of radicalization are not just that last step of operational jihad, but it starts where? Number one, it starts with the brainwashing that political Islamic state, the ideology that inspires the youth, we have to admit is this concept where Muslims are majority, they need to have Sharia law, they need to have Islamic parties like the Muslim Brotherhood, and that their political party is not about Republican, Democrat, Socialist. No, it's about being Muslim as a political identity. That's how it starts. And then the Islamist pattern of radicalization from that is that then family, friends, communities reject secular or Western or British patriotism, American patriotism. They reject love for their Western national brothers and sisters and instead embrace global jihad brothers and sisters. And with that, they end up permeating into their soul and their consciousness a deep disloyalty, a, a, a deep cancer of identity against the country in which they live because they're wedded they are bonded to the jihadi state second is a belief in the supremacy of the jihadi state even if they're loyal as Tariq ramadan and some of the neo-salafists say 
Be loyal, love your country. But still, in his book on reform, as other leading Islamists like Qardawi's reform, they talk about Islamic democracy as being the best system. So if you aspire to a theocratic form of democracy, yes, that's possible. Theocratic form of democracy, which is what the Shadi Hamids of the world preach out of Brookings and elsewhere, you are not believing that the best system in the planet is a secular American-type system of universal human rights, but rather you believe that rights are not from God, but from Islam. Some would say that's nuance. I would say that is a core central difference between liberals, classical liberals who believe in liberty, and theocrats. Next step of radicalization is the belief in the deep sense of victimization. And then you cue the radicalizers who inflame that victimization, like the Council on American-Islamic Relations, where America is the root cause of the problems. Where Americans, their bigotry against Muslims, their propaganda of hate against Muslims is our main problem in the West. We are victims. That's the identification. The racialization of Islam is part of that victimization. Rather than it being an idea, it becomes a race. Next step of radicalization is that they have disgust and rejection of Western culture and freedom as an evil rather than central to their faith. They then blame all the problems of the deaths of Muslims around the planet, upon the West, upon the foreign policy of the West, rather than upon themselves, upon their own regimes and other Muslims. It's a condition of illiteracy, of ignorance, a condition of lack of faith, lack of respect, lack of morality. No, they blame the West. And that feeds into then conspiracy theories about the problems that in Islam are related to others. Again, part of the radicalization process. The next step in the radicalization is equating Arab tyrants, Muslim militants of Arab corporate autocracy and monarchies, equating that with the West. Saddam Hussein was secular, just like America was secular. That's what they're taught in their schools in Syria and Iraq. The ones that the dictators don't get a hold of behind the scenes they're saying they're in the, in the tea shops they're told oh secularism is evil that's like the bath party well yeah the bath was evil is evil as we see with bashar assad but liberal secularism is not fascistic nationalistic secularism of jamal abdel nasser saddam hussein and hafiz and bashar assad this is deception They remove themselves then from Western culture when they're living here physically and consciously. There's a segregation, a ghettoization of the Muslim mind. That's an important step in radicalization. And then they identify as they separate out with the global jihadi movement, with the global Islamists. They're told the hadith that the Prophet taught that if the finger is infected, when the hand's infected, the rest of the body suffers. So they're told if your brothers and sisters in Palestine, in Kashmir, in Iraq, in Syria are suffering, then you suffer too. That's part of the ummah concept, not only ummah as community, but as state.
and thus inspires their belief in caliphism. That's like another step in the radicalization. And then they identify with the global nonviolent ideas of Salafism and jihadism. And that starts to push them into the fundamentalism of the Sharia state. The belief that this is not only a local project, but a global project. Salafi jihadism. If there's one word, Wahhabism is part of that. If there's one word to summarize the ideas of our enemy, Salafi jihadism. Salaf being the friend of the Prophet, jihad being a victory, a sense of struggle for victory against your enemies. And last, they then turn in their radicalization towards sympathizing with violence, moral depravity, and they dehumanize non-Muslims, they dehumanize liberal reformist Muslims, and they begin to believe that any means necessary to achieve this is sanctioned. And first it starts with sympathy for the terrorists. We see this in Hamas, who video after video sympathizes with the militants that, oh, this is wrong, but they were brought to this level, this stage, because of Israel, because of the West, because of conspiracy theory XYZ. And then they pay the families that raise these, these animals money to congratulate them and reward them for radicalizing their children. That's the nonviolent stage of radicalization. And by the way, up until that point, government does not do much at all. And legally, it's tough for them. We should not be monitoring nonviolent ideology with wiretaps, etc. We should be monitoring it publicly. If people are giving speeches publicly and writing articles about sympathy for terror movements, not the terror groups, but just sympathy for their ideas. I hope it's on the footprint of Homeland Security, but it's not. And then the last step is when they go operational. That last step is when they start looking at ISIS websites and saying, oh, this is interesting. Maybe I should become a jihadi. It'll make up for all my sins. Jihadi cool becomes cool for them. And they start to see the militarization that they began to have sympathy for become part of what makes them feel whole. They felt partly separated in their identity, victimized, blaming others, and now they can become whole after having served in prison, after having personality weaknesses, disorders, whatever it might be that makes them vulnerable. They then can become that operationalized jihadi. So a minor minority of nonviolent Islamists that go down that path I just gave you end up radicalized as far as militant operational suicide belt jihadis. But the radicalization process, as I see it, starts the moment they start listening and believing in speeches that put all the onus on the West, on conspiracy theories, etc. That's part of the radicalization process. This is the conversation, I know it was long, but this is the conversation we need to be having with our children, with our communities, with our churches, synagogues, mosques, governments, hearings, 
interfaith work, universities, every platform we have on media day-to-day, not just for a few days after an event, but week-to-week, month-to-month. This has to be our national campaign. President Trump convene the Commission on Radical Islam you talked about. Start to get these steps that I just went through about what radicalization is. Otherwise, the reform will never happen. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and I'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the Chris Salcedo Show. Why would you rarely find a government agency that spends less money than it's allocated? Because at the end of a budget year, if a particular government department has not spent all of the money that was budgeted, you know what they do? They go on a spending spree. They go out and they buy art and they go out and buy trivial, frivolous things. They just waste the American taxpayers' money so they can justify getting their increase next year. The Chris Salcedo Show. Weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. What happening this week? Unbelievable attack in Manchester. Thank you for letting me talk to you about that. What I want to do now is step back. Step back to really a wonderful change of topic in Washington by the president going to the Middle East. He was criticized for going to Saudi Arabia first. I think it was smart to go to the belly of the beast, the belly of the global petro-Islamic radical Islamist ideas and where they come from and start there and put them on notice. And I know last week we talked about what I hoped he would do. And now, as he ends his trip this weekend, I think we can talk about what he did, what he said. Talk about the hits and misses for his speech and also for his trip. For the most part, you know, I have to tell you, anyone who's honest out there has to say it is refreshing not to have a president that goes into a land of tyranny, a land of dictatorship, a land of misogyny. As the president in 2009, Obama did in Cairo. But he gave an apologetic, t- an apologetic speech, blaming beginning and ending in his speech with blaming American foreign policy and all of our misdeeds and our violence and who we killed, and then spending the majority of his speech talking about Israel and Palestine as if that linkage was the holy grail. That somehow if you solve this, and by the way, President Trump was continuing this presidential disease that both parties seems to have, which is that somehow if you can solve this crisis, then their names will be etched in history and the Middle East will become a haven of peace, which is a complete bucket of you-know-what. Yes, it would be wonderful for them to have peace. Yes, the Palestinians need new leadership because of the oppressive radicalism of both Abbas and Hamas. 
but the chance of success is very low and the linkage is absurd. The revolutions have proven since 2011 that the main malady of the Middle East is their dictators, their tyrannies, their governments, their militaries, their lack of ideas and ability to think clearly and freely and critically. That is the source of their problems. In his speech, I think the greatest soundbite was when he said the nation's of the Middle East will have to decide what kind of future they want for themselves, for their country, and frankly for their families and for their children. It's a choice between two futures, and it is a choice America cannot make for you. A better future is only possible if your nations drive out the terrorists and drive out the extremists. And he said, drive them out repeatedly. Now, honestly, the terrorists and the extremists, I said, the heads of many of those governments should have just walked out then. Because if you want to drive them out, drive those dictators out first. It is, there was an ad that was posted on YouTube from AP. It wasn't an ad. It was an AP news story that looked like an ad. And it showed this unbelievable technological center that I don't know how they built within three months. I think it's been obviously set to launch at some point and they didn't want to do it with Obama and we're going to do it with this new president, whoever it might have been. And I'm sure Hillary would have taken credit for it too if she had won. But it was like this thing out of a movie of James Bond or something with some Orwellian woman wearing a burqa and a hijab and saying, we are countering the ideology of it of radicalism, of terrorism and making it stop online and teaching Muslims to be good people, etc., etc. And then the king speaks and then others speak. Yeah, it's beyond Orwellian that this counterterrorism center is going to be based out of Riyadh. We'll see if they really now are shifting gears. They have had some big changes. They're working with Israel now because of the common enemy with Iran. But you can't white out the radical parts of the Wahhabi Islamist doctrine. It needs a wholesale separation of mosque and state, a wholesale belief in ground-up ideas, not top-down ideas. The second best hit was the call to isolate Iran. The call to do whatever possible to sanction and stop the spread of their global influence on terrorism. Now, the elephant in the room was the Saudi and Gulf state influence on terrorism also. But at least we saw a reboot and a reset, a recalibration of the stability of the 20th century that stabilized the Middle East where America was working closely with the Arab regimes, the Sunni regimes, and Russia had balanced their Soviet influence in the world with their relationship with Iran, and now post-Soviet Russia closely intertwined with Syria and Iran, and with now, apparently, as we've lost Iraq with Iraq. 
that's been reboot. I think that's a step forward, at least from where we came, because the Sunnis had been abandoned. The Sunnis then were unchaperoned in their influence in Syria, and the Saudis, Qataris, and Turks radicalized the revolution in Syria. Really brought about, if you want to talk about founding fathers of ISIS, it truly is Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey with the drive for radical, vicious jihad coming from the Assad regime's treatment of genocidal treatment of Syrian Sunnis. But the fueling of ideas, the fueling of ideas was done by Wahhabi influence and Qatari Brotherhood influence. The secular groups did not get funded, did not get helped by the Saudis because they would be a threat to them if they won. And this is one of the old Arab dictator playbooks, which is to fuel militants to justify military regimes. They fuel militants to justify military regimes. The bonus hit was that Moscow could not be happy, could not be happy at the strengthening of the U.S., Sunni axis against radical Islamists in Iran. The president also spoke, I think, very clearly that 95% of those attacked, if that, are Muslims. I think he should have been stronger in his defense about Christian minorities, Yazidi minorities, and others, and telling them that people need to be free and talking about religious freedom. He did not do that. That was a miss. But finally, finally are the end of the apologetics of the blaming America. The apology tour of the Obama administration of 2009. We did not see that and that was refreshing. I think one of the biggest misses is that he didn't speak to the people of these countries. He talked about Islam and Muslims as if the tyrants in the chairs he was speaking to in those gold-plated chairs as if those tyrants were the Muslims of the Muslim world, were the Islam of the Islamic world. I'm sorry, but they are the mafia. They are the corrupt kleptocrats that rape, pillage, steal, corrupt our societies and push them into a world in which not a single valuable product comes out of the Middle East. Not one free market success product that I can think of. Correct me if I'm wrong, please. Send me a technology that's sold globally that the Arabs have not bought from the West, that they have made themselves, or if it is made by an Arab, it's usually one that immigrated to the West from Steve Jobs on down, not one that grew up in the Middle East because those regimes rob them, rob them of their freedom to think freely and be individuals. When we come back, I'm going to finish the misses of his speech and talk about, hopefully, what the next steps are. As This is simply the first step, but it's important to know what some of those misses were. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. 
They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call a place for mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call a place for mom at 1-800-803-6951. Breaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Judy Jasser on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It is great to be with you this week. Thank you for being here. We were talking about the president's trip to Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, and what were some of his hits and misses on his speech. I think it's a great start. We talked about the fact that, I have to tell you, my biggest disappointment, biggest disappointment with this speech, and probably not a surprise for those of us who... Those of you who have been following me and knew what my criticisms were of the president during the campaign, the word freedom, liberty, and democracy did not come out of his lips. And listen, I get it for those of you who were on the Trump train and believe that it is not our role as nationalist American firsters to spread democracy. I get that. But hold on a second. You cannot, cannot see and be alive during a reform of Islam when those regimes are in power. Islam will not reform itself. People need the laboratory of freedom to do it. That laboratory can never even get the light of day under regimes like Saudi Arabia. That counterterrorism center they're building in Riyadh is just a big You're bunch of plastic. To this with it Dr. has Zubi no Jesser. reality to it unless the they can Radio question Network. the clerics and judges in those regimes that fuel an interpretation of Islam that tolerates one translation, that tolerates one interpretation, doesn't tolerate any alternative histories, translations, or and especially doesn't ask the question that I've asked on this podcast so many times, what would the prophet do today? Not what he did in 620, 625, or 630 CE. What would he do today? Would he believe in an American-style Western system? I believe he would. Would he reject the Islamic State? I believe he would. Those words would end you in jail, flogged, tortured, or killed by the Saudi regime. You cannot end Islamism. As much as the Saudi royals believe that they're anti-Islamist, they might be against the viral Islamist group of the Brotherhood because they can't be coordinated and they're a grassroots movement. I am too. I'm against them. But the Saudi royals and the kleptocrats are corporate Islamists who believe in a Sharia state, but only the ones where they control what the ulama, the scholars, scholars of Islam say, It is not about liberty. It is not about separating mosque and state. It is not about individual freedom. You cannot counter terrorism. Terrorism is a symptom of Islamists that want to create a caliphate, that want to create an Islamic state. Islamism will not, non-violent Islamism will never cure violent Islamism. It's like saying mild drinking is going to the mild drunks is going to solve the heavy-duty drunks. Sorry, alcoholism is alcoholism. One will not solve the other. 
just because you take away the keys. The cancer is political Islam. The cancer is the Sharia state. The solution is personal religious liberty separated from an identification of the Islamic state. That will not be solved in the Middle East unless after revolution. Tunisia is starting to do it. Syria will, once Assad regime is destroyed and gone and ISIS is gone, then it'll start on the path to repair and being mended. Egypt will not do it until it also starts to release the chains of chokes of tyranny. Yes, it was great that the people went to the streets against the Brotherhood, but it was too bad that they had to depose them in an undemocratic, non-revolutionary way. It should have been done in a revolution, not in a coup. Revolutions are of the people coup. Coups are by the military. The president in his speech should have identified a path forward, identified Sharia, identified Islamic supremacism as a problem. And he said, we're not here to lecture you or tell you. Well, I also was disappointed in that sentence. I'm sorry, we earned it. He handed them a $100, $200 billion arms deal. I think they can take a little lecturing after that. And okay, great. You know, that arms deal might balance the Shia threat with the amount of money that the Russians have been shoving down into Iran and Iraq and Syria. It might be a balance that's necessary. But to say then that we can't tell them that they need to treat women equally, that we're not going to wait till 2030. The president touted this 2030 plan. I visited with the Saudis when I was on the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom between 2012 and 2016. They showed us the beginnings of that plan. They're so proud of it. And it reminds me of that old joke my father used to tell me. Where the president of Syria, the dictator, Hafez Assad, would bring a general and say, you need to teach this mule how to speak English. And the general would say, I, don't, I, I can't do that. The next one. And he'd shoot him. He'd keep bringing in generals and shooting them. And then finally one said, okay, fine, I'll do it. But it's going to take me 15 years. And he goes back and the soldiers saw this happening and said, how are you going to teach this mule how to speak English? I don't care how many years you have. And the general said, well, in 15 years, either I'll be dead, the president will be dead, or likely the horse will be dead. So the Saudis continue to push things down the road because they think we're not going to remember and they can continue to stay in power as the kleptocratic, corrupt mafiosos that they are. They think we won't remember. Yes, Better for slow transitional change, but the Washington establishment needs to give that up. There needs to be, just as in South Africa, a demand for an end of the apartheid. That's the only resolution. But unfortunately, with the defense industry, with politicians, with the Saudi money that owns parts of much of the stock exchange and the investments in golf courses and in high-rises. I don't know if we're ever going to see American leadership that begins to end the addiction, not only to oil, but to the cash of the Middle East. 
which has suffocated any change, any products, any freedom, and any liberty. At least now there's been a recalibration. I think the speech of President Trump, while it could have been given by any Republican president or written by any other speechwriters from the 20th century, it seemed to miss the fact that it was post-2011 and they've been roiling with dealing with democracy and freedom. But it was definitely an improvement from the last eight years of somnolence and amnesia or, or anesthesia that we've had. I wish he had spoken past the people in that room to the people of Saudi Arabia and Syria and Iraq and Iran and the Green Revolution. He did mention the people of Iran, actually, because I think we see that that country is so tightly wound in its terror advert- in its terror support that he had to speak to the people. But in the Middle East and Syria and Saudi Arabia elsewhere, we're missing that component. So ultimately, President Trump, number one, as much as I loved hearing the word Islamist, and he said Islamic, but he meant Islamist radicalism. As much as that was true, I needed more. When you come back to the United States, convene that commission on radical Islam and have Muslims in it, if not lead it, so that we can begin the hard work of building platforms domestically and abroad, and especially domestically, since we can do things in real counterterrorism centers here, not facades, real counterterrorism centers that they just cannot do in the Middle East. Second, stop using the terms violent extremism and continue using violent Islamism. That's what we're countering, violent Islamism. Third, your brand, President Trump, was on fighting the establishment. Don't do that just domestically. Fight the establishment globally. Prove that you're not part of the establishment globally. Fight it. Tell them to adhere to our standards. Feel free to lecture them about universal human rights. They will not recoil because they need us a lot more than we need them. Reform can happen, but it has to start in this laboratory of freedom, in this laboratory of free speech, equality for men and women, religious liberty that doesn't exist anywhere that's perceptible in the Middle East, except in Israel and now growing in Tunisia and maybe some vestiges beginning in Iraq, but it's dying away after we pulled out. Thank you for listening to me, to this heartfelt episode of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. God bless you and God bless the United States of America. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.